from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that exposes hypocrisy as well as her body. A former stripper, current author, and a secular advocate with an acerbic wit. She's joining me today to talk about her revelatory book, Expose Yourself, as well as her previous and upcoming work. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Aaron Lewis. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for joining me. I came across the book that you co-wrote with Armand Rosamia entitled Stripper Noir and was immediately interested because I love noir and it seems like it's hard to find these days. But upon further investigation, I found that you were a writer of nonfiction. And the older I get, the more I've become consumed with breaking free from the bonds of societal convention. So your book, Expose Yourself, grabbed my attention and I found it extremely helpful. So I'm looking forward to hearing your perspective. Great. I'm glad you liked it. So the full title of the book is Expose Yourself, How to Take Risks, Question Everything and Find Yourself. And to give a little background, you were a stripper for 20 years and are now retired with a husband and a child. Is that correct? Correct. Probably a little over 20 years, kind of on and off. In your book, you say that if sex shaming didn't exist, neither would the sex industry. What beliefs would you say need to be changed in people's minds to reach that level? Well, the point behind that particular statement was really the connection that is just kind of inherent in all of society between sex and nudity. Mm. And when we get around to it, we're all naked. You know, we're all born that way. There is nothing inherently sexual about the human body until we put that on it. And of course, when we make it dirty, we make it taboo, we make it shameful or something that is supposed to be hidden then it really paves the way for that type of entertainment. So I think fundamentally, that's the belief that would need to change. However, it is still a form of entertainment. And so I guess maybe I might backtrack a little bit on that statement and say that, you know, it would probably always exist, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that it would be stigmatized to the point that it is now or, you know, hidden away or looked at as the way that it is now. Would you say that that was as a result of religious control or did it begin somewhere else? Um, I would say it probably does have its 
roots in religion, at least is how we look at like how those kinds of ideas exist today. Mm -hmm. But I actually did a little bit of light research on this for an article I wrote. And human beings have been covering their bodies for one reason or another, at least their private parts, you know, as long as we can tell. But some of the reason was because status, you know, Mm. decorations and adornment might kind of indicate somebody's place in society and also protective. I mean, you know, if it's if it's cold outside, it might be a good idea to kind of protect your, you know, sensitive bits. So people have been covering themselves in that way for pretty much as long as we can look back and see that. But I don't think that the shame really got attached to it until we really started to put some of that religion or those religious mythical beliefs on it. Because human sexuality, sex in general, is a great way to control people. It's one of those drives that we can't really help. So I think that the shame and stuff, you know, kind of came out of that, you know, convenient way to manipulate and keep people in line. Mm-hmm. And you make it very clear in the book that you don't have any kind of regrets. It wasn't something you had to do. It's something you wanted to do. It was a good way to make money. And if you do it a specific way, like, for instance, working sober to maintain situational awareness, you don't really have much to worry about. So what about something like prostitution and the legalization of prostitution? I think that actually goes back to the same type of question we were just talking about is that sex is something that is just inherently part of our humanity. And prostitution, of course, they call it the oldest profession in the world. I can technically be regarded as a sex worker. I was never a full service sex worker. So I don't have any real background in prostitution other than, you know, maybe knowing a few people. But it's not something that's ever going to go away. That transactional type of situation with sex is something that is good for some people. And especially as I became kind of an advocate and became online and realized people were actually listening to me, um, (laughs) the more I, I looked into that and actually spoke with sex workers internationally, nationally to see what their views on that. And the general consensus is that legalization regulation would make the entire industry safer for both providers and customers. The stigmatization of that and of sex workers is one of the reasons that it is so dangerous. And being able to actually put that in an environment where it's controlled and you have oversight and people, you know, making sure that it's safe is something I would absolutely be in favor of. Mm -hmm. And I think actually needs to happen. I might direct anybody who's more interested in or, you know, wants to learn more about legalization of prostitution. I would direct them to an organization called Old Pros. You can find them oldpros.org online. And they are committed to helping sex workers, destigmatizing it and, you know, working for legalization and to make it safer. Yeah, I can't remember where exactly it is in Nevada that it's legal. I know it's not in Vegas, but it's like the outside county area, something like that. There are two areas in Nevada that I know of. The whole middle of Nevada is like nothing. Mm, (laughs) I mean, like literally nothing. (laughs) Yes. If you've ever turned through there, there's like absolutely nothing there. Um, But yes, you're correct. There are two counties, both outside of Vegas and Reno, that I know of that have legalized prostitution. 
A long time ago, a friend of mine visited a place called the Mustang Ranch, which is now defunct and gone. Mm. And, you know, it was very safe. They had a lot of protocols that made it very, very safe. That if that had been something I was looking into, that would probably be the way that I would go. And then later on, I ended up meeting some people from the Bunny Ranch. The owner of that is now defunct because he's dead. Um, And he actually was not a great person. I met him. But even them were very happy with the situation and the way that they had it. You know, they were protected. There was always somebody looking out for them. Tax-wise, it was easier to kind of report that kind of thing and make it happen because when it's a legal thing, you have a lot of deductions and Mm -hmm. things like that. So that simplifies that whole process. Yeah, I remember the documentary. I forget what the name of the, I guess they called them brothels, what the name of it was. But of course, they had security coming out the ass. And I believe any potential customer had to strip and allow themselves to be examined to make sure they didn't have any sort of like venereal outbreak or anything like that. I believe they had to take a shower and some other things. And I believe the workers had to get tested on some regular basis. I'm not sure what the regular I believe it was, was weekly. Weekly. Okay. Yeah. So testing. And of course, you know, you have your run of the mill critters. That's like an antibiotic issue. And then you have some of the more serious things <laughs> yeah. like, you know, hepatitis and HIV mm-hmm. and the testing has become updated for that. So it's more advanced and it's a lot quicker. But I know that when we looked at the Mustang Ranch, and of course, I think my friend and I were like, I think we were 18 or 19 years old when we did this. So we were basically, you know, children logging into this thing. So we were all giggles and smirks and like, you know, and I just remember being horrified by that process. But when I go back and I look at it, I'm thinking, man, you know, that's really, it's really the way to do that to kind of make it safer for everybody. Yeah, it's kind of like when prohibition hit, that was the birth of organized crime, the, uh, the speakeasies and all of that. And that is certainly the argument for legalizing prostitution also is the fact that much like how things function in the strip club, when you have that kind of oversight, you really eliminate a lot of the motivation for bad actors like that to be involved. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, but um, Anton LaVey, who is the founder of the Church of Satan, He was a carny that played the Calliope. This is pre-Church of Satan days, obviously, but he was a carny. He played the Calliope for the Carnival Girly shows and also played the keyboards for burlesque clubs. But he, like you, developed amazing insight into the human animal because it's as if the state of sexual arousal is like a truth serum. So I wanted to know, what is the most surprising thing you've ever learned about someone while talking to them while seated in their lap or giving them a dance? Hmm. I would actually say that the most revealing things that I learned about people in that context was actually not necessarily during a state of sexual arousal. The strip club is obviously a hypersexual place, but it's also an anonymous place. And so In that way, it functions quite a lot like a doctor's office or a psychologist's office, dare I say lawyer. I might regret that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there were many times where one most memorable time was a bachelor party came in and the bachelor's friends had given me quite a lot of money to take him back to the VIP room for 
a very long time. Mm-hmm. And we went back there and I started to dance. He kind of stopped me and he said, you know, I just really need to talk. And he ended up revealing to me that he had some years back had signed a contract with a porn agency and had actually done male on male porn, despite being completely hetero. Mm. And he was terrified that his, not so much his fiance, but more of his mother-in-law or something like that. And he did it. And this sounds like a happy Gilmore plot, but this is what he told me is that he did it to actually save. It may not have actually been his grandma, but it was somebody in his family. He did it to actually save somebody's house. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he described it was really kind of, it was almost like a post-traumatic situation for him because, you know, he was not in any way homosexual. Mm -hmm. And he was put in these positions where he had to kind of disassociate, where he had to, you know, they had to have somebody there to help him actually perform. He was contracted for a year and had to do like 10 or 15 movies, something like that. But it was, there was an element of shame. He was just scared to death. At one point, he was near tears talking about this kind of stuff. And, you know, that wasn't sexual. That was the fact that he didn't know me. I didn't know him. There was no way that I could out him. There's no way that it was going to be written down in some permanent record somewhere. It was just that complete anonymous environment that allowed him to share that to me, which was at one point, I mean, we were both teary eyed. I just felt really bad for the guy because he wasn't, you know, he was a nice guy. His motivations were good. And he was very much like traumatized by this situation. And uh, I don't think I ever ended up even dancing for him. So most of the big revealing type things, there's been tons of other stuff. A lot of military guys returning from overseas Mm. that are in kind of the same position where they need to talk about things where they feel shameful being emotional. And it just isn't a sexual thing. As far as somebody actually being sexually aroused and revealing things, I mean, then you're probably going to get into things like kinks and stuff Mm. like that. But one horrifying incident, somebody had some kind of a step parent child kind of fantasy thing that he started talking about that we actually I actually had to end <laughs> I was I was done at that point I was like I'm a you know I'm Meryl Streep in the VIP room sometimes but that that was a bridge too far for me I had to I had to let that go but yeah most of the revealing things happen in a non-sexual state it's very much a human and uh, empathetic and compassionate type environment I mean of course there's girls that are going to be like I don't want to hear that by <laughs> yeah but you know most of them aren't like that yeah. Yeah. It's funny that you mention you as a sounding board. I was at a bachelor party. I think it was my brother's best friend's brother or something like that. And there was this dancer that was sitting at a table with this man. He was probably late forties, early fifties, something like that. And she was just sitting there. And so was the man. He was just kind of looking around. He was, you know, messing with his phone and stuff like that. And Somebody at the table wanted a dance from her, and this one guy that was there apparently was like a staple of this establishment. He's like, oh, no, no, you can't get her to dance right now. She's over there sitting with that guy. And apparently this guy paid her like about $300, $500 an hour just to sit there with him. Like, And I don't even think they talked. Hmm. 
So I guess it was just the uh, feeling of not being alone somehow. Uh, you know, maybe whatever's going on in his head, he's not able to verbalize. But when you were talking about you as kind of almost a therapist that made me think about that, sometimes they don't even want to talk. Sometimes apparently they just need somebody to sit next to them. I absolutely believe that. Although I would say most of the situations I had that were almost strictly like companionship, that type of a thing where they wanted to talk. But I can absolutely see that scenario happening. That's completely believable. Mm. I've been, uh, I got paid once to talk about politics, which actually was horrible. <laughs> uh, that was actually, that was probably. <laughs> can I just pay you not to talk about politics? <laughs> oh man, it was the long, yeah, it was probably the longest. It was only a half hour too. And it was like the longest half hour of my whole life. Well, one of the things you said with regard to men was the fact that you were exposed to so many of them made it to where you were able to spot a good one when you saw one. So I'm curious, what do those traits look like? Honestly, for me, and one thing that I've really tried to make clear and articulate in my writing is that the stereotypes and the stigmas aren't just about the entertainers or even the staff. You know, the customers, people have a certain idea of what kind of a, a guy comes into the strip club, you know, misogynist, you know, super Frat macho boy. man. Yeah, like that. And definitely there's that. Although, honestly, in my experience, that's a facade. That's something that is an ideal that they're living up to that somebody told them. I could throw out names because there's plenty on the Internet for guys to find those <laughs> kinds of really <laughs> terrible role models. But there's actually a lot of empathy and compassion and caring that you get from the customers. And one of the things that I found really striking as I actually started to pay attention, because I started so young. So there's a lot of this like sociological stuff that, you know, didn't click when I was 18, 19, 20, you know, thinking about not that. <laughs> and uh, like, I think the best example is that the vast majority of men fantasize about pleasing or pleasuring or even taking care of or protecting a woman. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of guys aren't that mouth breather, gym bro kind of thing. They're just not. And maybe they are out in the front room. But when you get them back, you find that guys really care about who you are. They want to know things about you. You know, they're not just interested in their own physical pleasure. And a lot of what excites them or what turns them on about the whole thing is the idea of pleasuring a woman. And mm. I think that that's really different than, you know, some of the things that people might think about what happens or how guys behave in the strip club. Yeah. Well, as I alluded to earlier, you give women that are thinking about being strippers the admonition to work sober because you can potentially be in a dangerous situation, you know, some six foot three or I mean, doesn't even necessarily have to be a large man. You get some alcohol into the equation and they can do some dumb things that don't even intend to do that can be dangerous. So I was curious, in your experience, do the club staff and security stick up for the girls if they're treated badly? Or are they more concerned with assuaging a paying customer that's throwing a lot of money around? Well, I have a two part answer. The first one is one of the reasons that I really want to make clear that you need, well, there's a couple reasons why you should be sober when you do any type of sex work at all. And it is to be able to be aware of your surroundings, but violence and the actual physical safety wasn't really my main motivation for stating that. It is, 
you do have some bad actors that come in there and they're very manipulative and they come off very nice. This is how women get trafficked Mm. out of these situations. You have talent scouts and agents and things like that, some of whom are totally cool and legitimate. Some are not. You have actual pimps that can sneak their way in and they're fast talkers. They're smart. So, you know, if you're not on your game, it could be very easy to get sucked into that. On the violence and the physicality part of it, most dancers are independent contractors, which means we're self-employed. So entertainers or performers, generally speaking, pay the club to work there. Mm. So it's not just the customer who is a paying customer. Um, It is the dancers. So if you remove all humanistic empathy and compassion and just basic human decency from the situation and look at it from a strictly financial, economical point of view, it is more advantageous for the club to side with the dancer. Generally speaking, there's a lot of cameras and stuff involved. So if it's obvious that the dancer maybe stole something or did something wrong, then they're going to side with the customer and probably get rid of the dancer. But Customers are a dime a dozen. And if you have a performer who's an asset to the club, who's bringing customers in, then one paying customer is not worth losing her over. So like getting back to like the legalization of prostitution, the way that a lot of strip clubs work is because of that setup, it really protects the girls and it makes them assets um, as opposed to liability. Whereas like if you're in a retail situation and you have an employee you know, that's paid to push buttons or whatever, and you have an angry customer, well, the customer's where your revenue's coming. The employee's a liability. So there's more incentive to please an angry customer, whether he's wrong, than there is the employee in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to depend on somebody's goodwill. It's a a financial uh, strong point to... Although I will stress that the vast majority of managers, bouncers in particular, because they're mm-hmm. kind of on the front line and even owners, people are people. I, I danced for 20 years and I did really come out of this with the general sense that the vast majority of people are decent human beings, or at least trying to be. I'm curious when you brought up pimps and trafficking, what kind of things are they luring them into that, you know, being in an altered state could lower your threshold for suspicion of? Well, I have been courted several times. Uh, Let's see. I think my favorite was that they wanted to use my body or my figure as the model for a character in a video game. Mm -hmm. That was kind of cool. I've been told I was going to be a supermodel, which is really ridiculous when you realize that I'm five foot tall. You can't be a supermodel (laughs) when you're five foot tall. Definitely the model thing, the actress thing, fame and money, the way anybody gets lured into something terrible. So the end goal is to lure you into an uncontrolled space. That can happen. That can happen. Uh, Unfortunately, I did an article on somebody that I worked with that found an agent that was fabulous and did a couple of movies, had a great time, ended up connecting with a different agent who used like deception, even in the way that he was contacting her and he was not truthful. And then when they actually got her, she ended up being in like torture porn and Ugh. was basically, it was seriously one of the most disturbing things I'd heard of. And I had worked with this person. And so that is probably the worst example that I have at least firsthand knowledge of. Mm-hmm. Well, there are, of course, many strippers like yourself, strong, independent, hard workers that 
remain sober to maintain situational awareness. But you briefly mentioned it in the book that a lot of people have this negative stereotype that always gets thrown around the drug user with low self-esteem. How prevalent are those women in the industry or are um, they prevalent? <laughs> it's funny. I guess I was, prevalence a strong word. <laughs> yeah. I have been asked this a couple of times and I'm kind of waffle because, you know, when I write about my experiences, they are my experiences and they're my experiences in the markets that I've worked in. So I don't like to speak for the entire industry, but my personal feeling is that it's probably somewhere in the realm of 60 to 70 on the independent, like hard worker side mm -hmm. and 40 to 30 on the other. But I do think that some women can start out with those intentions of being independent, strong, sober, a few tough nights, stressors and whatever. And the fact that because it's usually based at night, it's a party atmosphere. Those things are so available. I think that it's an easy trap to fall into, even if you didn't start out that way. Do you think it's worse the younger you are uh, yes. when you start? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I didn't always think that after interviewing a couple of um, the staff that I worked at for articles and profiles, one of them said that he would be all for raising the age to 21 for exactly that. When mm. you have a little more life experience, you know, when you're not so bright eyed and, <laughs> you know, naive yeah. and just a little more grown up. I mean, 18 is an arbitrary number that we put on adulthood. But I mean, if I look at myself, for instance, when I registered to vote at 18, I registered for the Green Party because I smoked a lot of pot. I had no idea what the Green Party was about. I, uh, I, I didn't care. You know, I was like, ooh, green, cool, Snoop Dogg, uh -huh. here we go. You know, that, that was my thought. So so going into it with that kind of mentality, I think, I think raising the age a little bit would probably help. So a major part of your book is how to take risks. And one thing that I like that you point out is the fact that if you try and fail, it's not a lost cause because the failure is a piece of information that you didn't have before. So you can not only learn not to do that again, but it may bring to light an aspect that helps you solve the problem or attain the goal. So can you give me some examples of your learning experiences from failed attempts? Um, failed attempt, man, man, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot. You know, I, it can be everything from trying to dye my own hair to the first time <laughs> I bought a house. Um, there are so many learning experiences Probably one of the biggest ones that was definitely a turning point for me was right after I graduated culinary school as a pastry chef, I really wanted to have my own business. Mm -hmm. And I took on this order and it was for like, I don't know, like 30 or something like little mini cakes. And, you know, I just come through this really prestigious culinary school. I had a really prestigious school loan too. <laughs> and I knew in my head what I was doing. I knew how to complete the task that I had taken on. But as I started to do it, because I didn't have the experience in what I was doing. Yes, I went to class. Yes, I excelled in what I was doing. I knew the, the mechanics of it. I knew logistically how it should work, but I had no experience doing it. And I took on what was a massive project in hindsight. 
that I did not have the skill for that I thought I did Mm. or the experience. And I absolutely failed miserably. Not only did I grossly undercharge, I couldn't complete it and was really, for lack of a better word, humiliated um, because I had to give her back her money. I knew that I was putting her in a situation where she had to scramble to find somebody else to do it. My ego took a massive hit, but I learned that when it comes to taking on those kinds of projects, I learned not to bite off more than I could chew. And I learned to really have a better understanding of what I was getting into before taking that on. So take risks, but wear a parachute. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, there's, there's, you know, frankly, I don't think I would jump out of a plane unless you like light it on fire. No, (laughs) no, no, that scares me. Oh, yeah. No, not even with Sidebar, you really should. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, tandem skydive. Tandem skydives, you don't have to do anything. I mean, you could forget everything they tell you to do. The only I, thing I you mean, really have to do is raise your legs up when you land. Yeah. No? Yeah. I, and you know what's funny is I'm so short, I probably wouldn't even have to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They could probably stand you up. <laughs> I'd be yeah. like a <laughs> ventriloquist <laughs> dummy hanging on the front. I, yeah. No, I no, I can't even. The thought of that actually just like, yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. All right. Well, just put it on the back burner. Don't discount it. Like I said, light the plane on fire and I might change my mind. Might. Will do. Change my mind. (laughs) Well, I mean, when you get in those particular planes, the expression is jump out of a perfectly good airplane. They're usually not perfectly good. They're kind of (laughs) scary. So, (laughs) but um, as it says, question everything, critical thinking. So with regard to critical thinking, You talk about how religion doesn't allow you to think critically on whether or not there's a higher power to begin with because doubt is automatically heresy and it will send you straight to hell. But that's church. So what about the state? And we've already mentioned this, so please not to get into a political discussion, but do you think the state stifles critical thinking by wedging the entire population into two psychological profiles called the Republican and Democratic parties? Because hmm. I feel like that leaves little room to think critically because it's appealing to that subjective magical idea of good versus evil. You know, the Republicans think the Democrats are evil and vice versa. And it's like, our vote is our part in this LARPing war. <laughs> I think what it does maybe really fuels tribalism. Mm-hmm. And I think that any kind of tribalism, be it political or not, when you align with a group, I think that that in itself stifles critical thinking. So to shift it away from politics, I know that there have been studies where you have a Democrat presented with a very reasonable idea that mm-hmm. if you hadn't put a label on it, they would probably consider, but then tell them it's Republican and that's the end of it. Yeah. That's it over and vice versa. Vice versa. Where, yeah. It's one or the other. So I think it's not the issue of political parties per se. I think the broader issue is just extreme tribalism. Okay. Well, I have to admit, actually, I don't want to admit, but I'm going to. I basically fell for your conspiracy theory, (laughs) but it's hard not to. Like you said, when you inject true elements into it, you're like, oh, well, that's true and that's true. And it's in this linear progression. So the whole thing's got to be true. And so 
how do you use critical thinking to decide what to believe about things like what you were talking about, for instance, things that I and pretty much everybody else would be so far removed from, you know, I can't, uh, I can't take two months off of work and do independent research. You know, I've got to, for the most part, almost have faith in certain things. So how can you think critically about things that you're so far removed from without just, you know, succumbing to like epistemological nihilism where nothing can be known? Well, I mean, you have to learn to evaluate the sources of information that you're getting. Not everybody is trained to research papers to be able to find out what kind of publication or journal those studies were published in and were they peer reviewed or they whatever. So we definitely have to take a look at where you're sourcing your information. But if you take even just the basics of like the scientific method, which is evaluating and reevaluating information, evidence, and all that kind of stuff, as well as trying to make sure that you're identifying your own biases or, you know, other faulty reasoning aspects, you know, it's a constant process. It's not something where can you ever be sure? No, but you can be reasonably sure. Like with science, right? It's almost never a hundred percent. There's a reason there's peer review. There's a reason there's consensus. There's a reason that things change. You might have a recommendation, you know, at one point it was totally cool and healthy to smoke while you were pregnant. You know, <laughs> then we we learned more and decided that wasn't a good idea. Not so much. Um so yeah, I think, you know, at some point there are certain things that you have to take on faith, I guess. You have to learn to source your information and constantly reevaluate. And, you know, I think a lot of the internet researchers get tripped up by their biases, even their own search terms. I'm always terrified when people say, I did my own research. Oh, did you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, well, that explains a lot, uh, you know, because oftentimes when we're looking for the answer to something, we start out with the answer we want and we look for things that confirm that. So the better way to find the truth as best we know it is to actually go backwards and start with the answer you want and look for how you would disprove that. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, up until recently, the words critical thinking, I thought were just sort of a descriptor, but there is kind of a discipline of critical thinking. And isn't there some sort of organization dedicated to it? Oh, there's quite a few. I would say the Center for Inquiry is probably my favorite. There is a biology professor there. She has a website called thinkingispower.com. And she teaches her students critical thinking. And she has a thousand different methods and ways to kind of check your stuff. Center for Inquiry, if we're going to talk about critical thinking, is probably my favorite organization. There's a skeptic group, too, that's responsible for the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. They also have a podcast. Stephen Novella is one of them. But yeah, there's lots of groups out there that are actually working to kind of hopefully teach people some of these techniques and principles behind critical thinking. Yeah. Usually when people say kill your darlings, they're talking about like editing a manuscript or something like that. But you know, those, those darlings, your beliefs, I think Louis CK calls them his believies, you know, it's just like, it's got to be the most difficult thing in the world to not succumb to confirmation bias. Yeah. And sacred cows is another one. 
And because when you believe something really strongly and then you confront evidence that refutes that, there's what's called cognitive dissonance. And it makes you very, very uncomfortable. And it's a strong and compelling feeling and not a fun place to be in. And so it definitely keeps people digging in. I don't know if you've seen, it's been a while since I've watched talk shows, but you know, every once in a while you would see somebody on a talk show where they had been taken in by some sort of scam or catfish or something like that. And you can just keep showing them that what it is, is not true. It's this person that they gave their heart to, their money to, their whatever is a scam artist. And they're just bending over backwards and doing everything they can to not believe it because it hurts. It's uncomfortable. It sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the book, you at one point speak about the marriage ideal and what marriage is supposed to traditionally look like and what it looks like for you. And the older I get, it becomes glaringly obvious to me that I despise tradition. <laughs> I mean, not all, but it's like in some cases, no one involved even enjoys the tradition. And when asked why they do it, their only explanation is because it's tradition. But like I said, it's not always the case. I think funerals are very cathartic for the living and allow people to grieve. But I'm getting married this year. So I wanted to know, what about the tradition of a wedding did you find beneficial when you got married? So uh, very cathartic, um, giving me a chance to grieve. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the justice of the peace can pronounce yeah. you married and dead. <laughs> yeah, right. No. Um, okay. So are you talking about the institution of marriage or just the tradition and the trappings well, the, of the party and the ceremony? Yeah. Like, you know, because I mean, I think a lot of it has some pretty weird origins. Like, isn't the engagement ring like evolved from the dowry that the grooms I don't Father, know. That I guess. sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, no. I, I think so. I think. I mean, I know diamonds are a girl's best friend, but I <laughs> think that evolves from when the groom's father would pay a dowry, which was usually in the form of, like, cattle, I think. You know, kind of a down payment on the bride, so to speak. Oof. So, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I want to profess my love to this woman with friends and family, but... You know what you see on television, Bridezilla and all that kind of stuff? I mean, what would you say are the salient elements of a wedding that really make it worthwhile? I think actually exactly what you just said is that you are professing your love. You're basically making this show of commitment and partnership and that kind of a thing. And as far as like the wedding shows and people freaking out over every little detail, I think that is really toxic. And I think it absolutely speaks against at least my idea of what a marriage ceremony should be about. It should be fun. It should be a party. It should be a joyous event. It shouldn't be, oh my God, we're getting married because we got pregnant or because we did this or we did that or because everybody else wants us to. I think marriage ceremonies or whatever needs to be very individualized to the couple. And it needs to be about whatever the couple wants. If they want to get married barefoot in bikinis on the sands <laughs> or in furry costumes or whatever the hell that means or by themselves or skydiving, I don't think it makes any difference. I think it's just really a public profession of your love and your commitment to each other. And I don't think that that's even 
necessary. Relationships, Mm. like I said, are very individualistic. And I think it needs to mean something special to each couple. And I think if you're tripping out because your wedding dress isn't perfect or the flowers are slightly the wrong shade of something, I think you're missing the point. And I think you're probably not going to enjoy being married. Yeah, it becomes status at that point. But uh, circling back to religion and the age of 21 affording somebody a little bit of life experience. There are many things about religion that I think are helpful to some people. And actually, I want to make that very clear. I don't harbor any kind of aversion to Christians that live and let live. The thing I have a problem with is the fundamentalist Christians that impose their will on people. And what I harbor a visceral resentment for is telling children that they have to follow a religious doctrine or they will be tormented for eternity in hell where they will burn in fire but never die, as I was. So I would say by definition that is emotional and psychological abuse, but it's tolerated because of freedom of religion. So just as a thought experiment, what do you think the world would look like if religion, like drinking alcohol, was only allowed to be engaged in by people 21 and up? I think that the issue with religion, and my real opposition to religion does boil down to harm. I know plenty of people that have beliefs that are not harmful to them or to other people, and we're all just kind of, you know, trying to do the best we can with what we have Mm -hmm. through our lives. So I don't want to be too harsh on religion there. However, I think that taking some of those beliefs, it's a real lack of critical thinking skills, being told to take something on faith. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it is damaging to teach a child that. And I think that if people were not exposed to religion, just religion as of 21, I don't think we'd have a lot of religion. Mm -hmm. I think it would be probably pretty close to decimated, but I'm not sure that it would resolve the larger issues of people and toxic belief systems. I think that religion that young can facilitate other types of magical thinking. So you might drop religion as you get older, discover that it's not something you're into, but fall smack into something else that's, you know, just as damaging. But yeah, no, I think if people were not exposed to religious ideas until after the age of 21, I think we definitely have a lot less religion in the world. Yeah, I just read this book on the uh, psychology of horror movies, and the author talks about how from the beginning of birth to the age of seven is the concrete operational stage. And if you are traumatized by being really scared from watching a horror movie, it will more than likely be something supernatural because you're in that concrete operational stage and you have more of a frame of reference for imaginary things than you do for you know things in the real world that you haven't been exposed to. So I interviewed a guy named Mason Marks who just like me when he was younger, he went to something called Hell Houses where there were like these huge plays that took place in different scenes in different rooms, like either in the church or in their recreation center or something like that, where you just go from one stage of this is the sinner sinning to this is where they end up. 
And in my case, I did a play called To Hell and Back, and I was one of the guys that got dragged to hell, and they would tell me to scream louder and stuff like that. And also the passion play where I saw Jesus graphically tortured and crucified (laughs) year after year after year. If you plug that into a child in the concrete operational stage, it's going to do some damage and it's going to be hard to get that out once it's been established. It's very hard to not look at that, especially as a parent, to not look at that as abuse. And my real reason for saying that is because when I was a kid and my brothers, I don't know if inadvertently, maybe on purpose, exposed me to horror movies or things that were really scary. Well, when I was scared, I was told that's fake. It's not real, you know, and was able to get a measure of comfort from that and was able to say, okay, these aren't real things to be afraid of. When it comes to religion, particularly belief in hell and sin and, you know, the bloody guy murdered on the cross, that's taught as truth. And I think that's particularly abhorrent because now you have to walk that back as an adult and you have to unpack that and you have to say, okay, so people I loved and trusted, these are my go-to people. These are who I'm learning about life from are telling me that this really scary stuff is real. That's really hard to wrap my head around as a parent. I could never imagine looking at my child and saying something like that, <laughs> ever. I was fortunate in that respect. I grew up like sort of Catholic, mm-hmm. that when I asked about hell, because we we're Catholic, like the whole end of the world or Armageddon or whatever, wasn't really a thing. I heard that from somebody else and I was like, Oh, what? I forgot like, about that too. Yeah. That and they're like, thing. they're like, Oh no, 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 no. That's going to happen like millions of years in the future. There's nothing to worry about. Hell is for, I grew up in the eighties. Hell is for Richard Ramirez. You know, hell is for the really, really bad people. You don't go to hell for stealing a cookie. You don't go to hell for, you know, saying a bad word. And so for me, while those kind of God beliefs and that stuff was taught as truth, I wasn't exposed to that really like horrific stuff. And when I did ask about it and I was afraid of it, I was comforted in that respect. Whereas what you're talking about is just heartbreaking. I've heard that so many times and it's it's hard for me to hear it. No matter how many times I hear it, I cannot picture it as a parent. Yeah, those neural pathways have been set. And I'm sure you know somebody uh, like somebody that um, was abused and has low self-esteem so they keep on getting in the same shitty relationships over and over again Hmm. and you're like why can't that person just not do this because that shit's been drilled from a young age you can't just turn it off like a switch and it's the same thing with what i refer to as i I forget who said it but i latched onto it as soon as i heard it was a bible abuse Hmm. i haven't heard that but yeah no that makes sense and and i think i'm not really to let adults and parents and stuff off the hook. You know, a lot of people have been raised that way themselves. And so that was what they knew. And, and they might've actually been genuinely afraid for your soul or that kind of stuff. But like I said, I, I just gave a talk for an organization called recovering from religion where I gave a talk on sexuality and body issues, but I heard so many of those stories and it was just, I ran out of tears by the end of the weekend Mm. because I just, it's so hard for me to picture a little kid. And there were some really extreme things that happen and actually have a lot of respect and admiration for people that come from that kind of background and are able to come out of it okay and are able to find themselves working their way out of it and not passing that on to their own kids or, you know, continuing to wallow in it because that takes an immense amount of strength to come from that kind of a place. Well, 
listers at home, expose yourself, how to take risks, question everything, and find yourself. Humor and insights from my life as a stripper. Great book. A lot of what we've talked about doesn't even really scratch the surface, so definitely check this out. But moving along, I wanted to ask you about this new book you have, a work of fiction called Stripper Noir. Tell me about this. Well, Armin Rosamelia is a champion of independent writers. And when I first self-published my memoirs, he found it on Amazon and hit me up on Facebook. And I was just so flattered. I was on his podcast and I couldn't believe that somebody had actually found this silly little thing I wrote that I put out there just to put out there. And so he's somebody who has really been a mentor to me. And I know a lot of other budding writers and has definitely spawned my fiction writing. My passion has always been for reading fiction and writing fiction. Of course, I started writing with things I know. Mm -hmm. So nonfiction ended up being where I've done most of my work. But was it last year or the year before? I asked him if he would be willing to collaborate with me. And he was very generous. And so we came up with this idea for the detective and the serial killer story. And so he uh, writes the points of the detectives and I write the part of the serial killer stripper. <laughs> so it was uh, actually my funnest piece of writing. There's another collaboration we have coming out. It's a compilation of three zombie novellas that is going to be coming out sometime next year. It's pretty much all I can say. I wrote one, he wrote one, and then an author, a friend of his, actually passed away recently. He wrote the other one. So it's going to be a compilation of three short zombie novellas. Awesome. All right. Well, tell me about your book, and I really dig the title, Dirty Thoughts and Awkward Boners. <laughs> so that was... <laughs> okay, and, so, and how and, long did it take you to come up with that? <laughs> uh, not long. Not long. I, I, you know, it wasn't... Uh, let's say it's not as deep as Expose Yourself. In fact, it's not deep at all. Okay. It's quite shallow. It came about because of my background and because I've been, you know, promoting myself and my books and stuff on social media. You know, I've attracted a certain demographic that was kind of pushing me to do like an OnlyFans or something like that, which is something I'm just not really interested in. So I started a Patreon account mm -hmm. specifically for certain followers that I had. And I would post a couple of pictures here and there. Patreon is pretty strict about porn and nudity and things like that. So that's why I chose that platform basically to keep me boxed in. <laughs> mm, okay. And uh, so every month I would publish an erotic story, mostly fictionalized. I'd say probably 99%. And I ended up getting ready to just wind down that account. I had other projects going on and it had kind of run its course. But I had these 19 erotic stories and I thought, you know what? I have a book right here. So let's go ahead and put this out. And so that's pretty much how that came about. And they're fun, dirty, filthy stories. Um, and that's pretty much it. Like I said, it's not a lot of deep thoughts there. It's just, it's smut for the fun of it. Nice. Well, how about Dirty Money? Dirty Money is the book that I mentioned that Armin had found. That is my very first work as a writer. Something that, for lack of a better word, I kind of started writing out of spite. 
I was kind of annoyed with the stereotypes and, you know, the constant questions and misrepresentations and things that I saw. And so I thought, you know, to hell with it, I'm just going to start writing. And so I basically start from my childhood, why I started dancing. There's tons of stripper stories, the good, the bad, sometimes pretty foul, you know, hard times. It's not all glitter and rainbows. Sometimes there's some rough stuff that goes on in the clubs. Not always super kind in that book. I just kind of write what I thought at the moment. Last February, it was republished by Weasel Press and um, updated and revised. Hmm. So Now, are your books, are any of them self-published or are they all coming from presses? Um, Expose Yourself, Dirty Thoughts and Awkward Boners, and Think You Want to Be a Stripper are all self-published. Okay. Uh, Dirty Money started out self-published, but then was republished by Weasel Press. And then Stripper Noir is put out by Hellbound. Hellbound. Okay. And do you have a preference? Like, what have you uh, noticed from the creative control, self-published versus working with a press? Um, creatively, I haven't had any issues editing-wise. I suspect if I ever became involved with a bigger publisher, that might become more of an issue. The advantage and the thing that I really like about working with a publisher as opposed to self-publishing is the editing aspect. Self-editing is really difficult. (laughs) And that was why I was really happy that Weasel Press took over Dirty Money because, you know, I got to have some professional eyeballs on my very first piece of writing, which was frankly Mm. terrifying. But it was important for me to have that done. So I'm kind of back and forth. I'd heard somebody that I really admired had made a comment years ago, just shows you how negative comments really stick with you sometimes, Mm. that said, if you're self-published, you're not a real writer. Mm. And if there are any writers listening to that or listening to this, I would really like to let them know that that is just a huge load of horseshit. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you're a writer, you're a writer and you write stuff. And whether you have made it through the huge crowd that is everybody trying to get published and somehow was able to get picked out of that whole pile or whether you took the initiative to self-publish you're a writer one way or another Hmm. and one thing i was really interested in you actually sent me some links to some articles you had written for i guess you would refer to it as an online periodical only sky media yeah only sky media is a media outlet online That is dedicated to reporting the world and commentary from a secular perspective. So basically peeling off the cultural ideas and perspective of a lot of journalists and reporters out there. So I write a column and I write feature pieces mostly for their taboo project. When I started writing for them (laughs) last year, turns out that a few of my articles got the entire page demonetized because Google ads doesn't like Golf clap. Golf clap for that. I was like, oh man, I'm really happy they just didn't tell me to like kick rocks. You know, and they're like, oh no, actually, we're going to create this cutout part of the site where they actually cover taboo topics like assisted suicide, legalization of drugs, and anything sex work involved. Mm -hmm. So even if it's just stripping, which is so silly. I think one of my one of the articles that they didn't like was sex work isn't about sex, which is just it's so silly. It's a very humanistic article about 
the human side of interacting with customers. And it was like, man, why do you want to hide this from people? I guess is my thought. And so if you frequent the only Sky Media site, how do you come across it if it's kind of off the beaten path? They have right on the front page, they do have a pretty sizable link that says taboo stories. Oh, and, okay. and it will direct you to that page. And it is member supported. So subscribing to that page supports myself and other writers for that particular section. Okay. Well, what is the life of Aaron Lewis like outside of writing? Oh, um, well, because independent writing is not as lucrative as one might think. I am an office manager for a small contractor's office. Literally, there's like the owner and another employee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I do like bookkeeping and that kind of stuff. I'm the HR department also, which is probably the only place I could actually do that. And that would be acceptable. I like to cook. My son is coming up on 18. My husband and I have been married for 22 years. And I read a lot of books, both nonfiction and fiction. And I write as much as I can. That's pretty much it. Actually, just started playing D&D, Dungeons and Dragons, for the first time in my whole life, which has been I've never weird. played that before. Oh, man. You know, I, I wasn't to make, allowed to. That was supposed really? to be like communing with the devil. I was the... <laughs> So I just thought it was like super nerdy when I was a kid. I was like, I'm already really nerdy. Like I can't cross that threshold. You know what I'm saying? Uh -huh. I'm like, it's over for me. And yeah, it's actually been quite fun. So this will be my second time <laughs> playing it with, with uh, yeah. a group of people. So That's what I hear now when people, you know, they'll say, oh, I do nerdy things like play Dungeons and Dragons. But when I was growing up, like the church I went to told everybody that Dungeons and Dragons and I guess any kind of role playing game. But I remember that one specifically was like you're trafficking with the devil. You could end up being possessed by a demon or something like that. So until I was older, anytime somebody mentioned that game, I'd be like, oh, you play that? You know? Well, it was a big part of the satanic panic. Back oh, then in the was 80s. it? And okay. Yes. And Stranger Things touched on that. Um, okay. also with the D and D cause that's what they were doing in the whole Satan and devil thing. Of course, you know, they actually had really scary things, but yeah, no, it was, uh, that was a big part of the satanic panic back then. I did not realize that. Yeah. I never read that book. Jennifer remembers, but there was a Christian comedian that used to LARP as a former satanic priest that really made a lot of money off the satanic panic. He had like some sort of sermon that he had on CD or audio cassette back then and all kinds of stuff. But I didn't realize that's where the whole D&D &D thing came from. It's interesting. It was part of it. A lot of the satanic panic did come from the repressed memory thing. And, and that's all been now regurgitated into a lot of the Pizzagate. Yeah, QAnon, that's what I was going to say, is, is yeah. really just a really bad satanic panic reboot. But it's actually, if you if you research the we both... we got social media now, though. <laughs> if, I, yeah, that made it way worse. But if you look at both back then and the theories that perpetuate, they really it's really not even very imaginative if you want to look at conspiracies. Like, they could have really tried harder. Like, they needed a writer, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> we should have had, like, Armand in there, uh -huh. actually, and that would have helped, you know? They could have come up with something a little more original than the same shit that we already went through, so... You know. uh, yeah. Well, I'm going to make an assumption about you, which you may not even engage in this activity, but based on your insight into the human mind, you are a good poker player. 
So I'm, I'm the worst poker player. Oh, I play, shit. I play, God damn it. You know, and part of it is because I'm concentrating on the, actually the rules of the game. And for whatever reason, a lot of games, particularly card games, are just not like, I don't know. I just have never been very good at them. And so I understand what you're getting at. And actually, definitely not the worst assumption that's ever been made about me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I never even got to that part of the game because I still have never really grasped the mechanics of the whole thing. So, But do you think you would be good at reading people, like knowing if they had oh, a yeah. hand? Oh, yeah. for sure. Okay. Yeah, if I ever get to that point. And basically, I just avoid it. I just don't play. I think... Yeah, Yeah, because, I mean, it's one thing to be able to calculate odds on the spot, but it's an even more useful skill to be able to read the person because people bluff. And just because the odds are good doesn't mean it's going to happen. So, yeah, yeah, and I hung up on that part of it. So, like I said, I never got to the other part of it. I'm hung up on the numbers. When it comes to accounting, for some reason, I'm good at that. But numbers and math have never really been my strong suit. <laughs> Well, what about your penchant for death metal? Oh, you know, I don't know if you've seen the show Dead to Me, mm. but I, it's with Christina Applegate, um, okay. who was like my idol back in the 90s. <laughs> I so badly wanted to be blonde. Um, <laughs> she is grieving the loss of her husband and she's going through all this drama and whatever. And you'll see her in her car and she will just turn on... Some of it sounds like Cannibal Corpse. I'm not even sure what it is. It's definitely harder than stuff I listen to. But one of the last episodes, she is talking to what is ultimately going to be her new love, it looks like. And he's playing like Patsy Cline or something like that. And he's describing how he likes to sing along. And it's this like deep, like sad kind of thing. And she goes, okay, no, listen to this. And it's like this like booming, screaming, screeching metal. <laughs> and, you know, she's like looking at him to see what he thinks. And and he's like, well, what do you like about this? And she says, it's like they're venting for me. It's like they're screaming for me. It's like they are kind of purging those feelings. Me as a five foot tall chick, I'm not screaming like Slipknot, uh -huh. you know, like that's not going to ever be me. And so for me, it was really that kind of purging, that vomiting of just raw emotion and feeling that I find very cathartic. Although I absolutely understand why other people might prefer something else. So do you engage in catharsis through moshing? No, no. no. <laughs> Don't, probably not. Well, I guess Usually, if, if you're five feet, I guess you're probably not going to do much damage. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of the crappy thing about a mosh pit, actually, is that, you know, if you're there to listen to music and you're in the mosh pit, like, especially for me, like, I'm not seeing the stage. I'm not seeing nothing. Mm -hmm. Unless somebody's putting me up on their shoulders, I'm seeing nothing. And I'm certainly not going in there and, you know, six inch platforms. So it's just not a practical place for me. But if I'm going to be listening to heavy metal, it's usually cleaning the house or at the gym yeah. or actually in my office. And it keeps my boss out of the office, too. So that works out <laughs> well. You know, put on a little slayer. He's on the other side of the house. Nice. <laughs> well, circling back to the book, Expose Yourself. If there is one main thing you want people to take away from reading this book, what would that be? Um, I hope that it really invokes a lot of self-reflection, self-evaluation, and, you know, kind of reevaluating. You know, in one point of the book, I talk about my not believing that there's an afterlife. And 
I think one of my main and most important takeaways out of that book is that whether or not you believe that or not, that you make the most of what we have, of the time that we know for sure that we have, Mm. which is right here and right now. And that means kind of taking a look at some of the stuff that makes your life not quite what you want it to be, be that old beliefs, be it maybe not taking that risk you've always wanted to. I mean, writing and publishing was a huge risk and something I thought I would go nowhere. And it's actually been really cool. And so I hope that people can find that for themselves and find the courage to kind of step out of the box that, you know, society, culture, parents, authority, everybody wants to kind of put us in. It doesn't mean you have to get out of that box. Mm. It just means to take a look and make sure that it's what you really want. Well, Aaron, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. It's been fun. Very grateful for the chance to be able to talk to you and meet you and have this discussion. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Aaron, thank you again for joining me. Thank you. Goodbye. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Yeah, you got it. Go ahead and show it. You was working for it. Break your back. Every time you throw it, girl, you so heroic. If I get a taste, I'ma probably lose my mind. Gotta stop coming here because I leave broke every time. I'ma blow a bag on you because you deserve it. Hey, fuck the Louis. I'ma buy your ass a Birkin. You were 10 on the gram and 10 in person. Role playing, I'm the best, now let me search it. Hey, uh. is you nasty like Lil Megan? No, got class like Chloe K. You gon' swallow all the nutter, wanna drippin' on your face. My girl sending hella texts, say pick up the phone. I fell in love, but it's drippin', I ain't coming home. Damn, yeah, you got it, go ahead and show it. You is working for it, break your back. Every time you throw it, girl, you so heroic. If I get a taste, I'ma probably lose my mind. Gotta stop coming here, cause I leave broke every time. Yeah, you got it, go ahead and show it. You is working for it, break your back. From the hood. Now that you say that, man, I know I seen that girl before. She used to work the register at the little corner store. She got a sister named Keisha, work at Come and Go. She used to lay up on the me just like an underscore. That's facts. Yeah, you got it. Go ahead and show it. You was working for it. Break your back. Every time you throw it, girl, you so heroic. If I get a taste, I'ma probably lose my mind. Gotta stop coming here, cause I leave broke every time. Yeah, you got it. Go ahead and show it. You was working for it. Break your back. Every time you throw it, girl, you so heroic. I get a taste, I'ma probably lose my mind.